Good morning. If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, so we'll be this morning picking up where I left off last month, uh, midway through the chapter around verse 10. Um, and I would just ask for your prayers as you turn there for me. Um, I don't know that I've really ever wrestled with a text this much, um, both just personally and, and intellectually. So I, I need the spirit. I've been reminded more and more this week this is something that cannot be done in my own effort. Um, in my own ability. Um, so I need, I need the Lord to give me utterance. I need the Lord to bless us today. Um, and if you'll remember as you turn there, and hopefully as you pray for me, that we had gone into um, a new section of the letter to the Colossians. Um, Paul's discussion of, of essentially the Christian life. He had given the Colossians all sorts of instructions about Paul in, in Colossians chapters 1 and 2, or about Christ rather, not about Paul. Um, about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all things as our creator and sustainer, as the head of the church, the firstborn of all, the heir of all. All things exist for him. All redemption happens for him. It is all for his glory, and he is enough for us. And then he dealt with the root of the false teaching that the Colossians were facing, which was essentially an undermining of Christ's sufficiency. You need something else. You need something else to be spiritual. You need something else to be mature. You need something else to have the love of God, to have an assurance of salvation. Um, And Paul asserts simply over and over again in the letter to the Colossians that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. That's really the summary statement of the letter. And then he began a new discourse on simply just living the Christian life. Starting with in verses um, 1 through 4 of chapter 3, the Christian's new identity in Christ. That they are known for one thing and one thing only, and that is that they are in Christ. That determines everything about you as a Christian. You are in Christ. Um, And then, secondly, we saw what what Paul called the putting off. We saw this put off, put on principle, which is essentially our part of uh, progressive sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. Putting off what is not true of us, because we are now in Christ. Um, We saw that the putting off in Colossians 3 was Paul's description of active, serious, no-holds-barred war against our indwelling sin. Against any remnants of earthliness in us. Um, Anything that would draw our eyes downward from Christ who is seated at the right hand of God and put them on ourselves. Um, Put them on our own sufficiency. Put them on our own passions and evil desires in the flesh. We saw that the death of sin in the Christian life is something that we carry out. That we walk out as those who have already died to sin in the death of Christ. Unified with him by faith. And we have been raised in Christ given life and forgiveness and power over our sins. So for the Christian, there is no need to hide your sin or to nurture your sin or to abide by any sin in the Christian life. It's not your authority any longer. It's not your identity. It's not essential to you or necessary to you. It's not even your desire if you have a new heart that that loves and desires Christ. We have a new identity. We have a new heart with new desires, a new Lord and Master. So the Christian is as one who is in Christ, able to actually obey Jesus by the Holy Spirit in putting those remaining, defeated, condemned foes of our master to death in our minds and our bodies, stripping off the old and filthy rags. That was essentially what the word meant, taking off clothes, changing clothes, taking off the grave clothes of our death and putting on the clothes of Christ's righteousness in our life with him. And that's what remains for us to examine this morning. It's, it's putting, off, or putting on, rather, the new life in Christ. We've put off our sin, so we now put on 
Christ. It's the clothing of our minds and our bodies and the character and image of our Lord. Becoming like Christ. And this is not something that's simply done in our own efforts. Becoming like Christ is not merely just imitating Him. It's not just following His example. Um, It's not doing outwardly what is desirable to Him. It's putting on Christ Himself. Um, Because we are in Him. What is already ours, what is already available to us in Christ. His righteousness was counted to us in our justification. It was credited to us, though we didn't possess any righteousness of our own. It was simply given to us by faith as a gift. But in sanctification, His righteousness is actually available to us. As we progressively take on the character and the disposition of Christ, we become more and more like Him inwardly. And His righteousness is not simply available, as Justin talked about. It's promised for those who are in Christ. It's predestined for those who are the called. For conformity to the image of the Son is something that we were predestined for. It's the purpose of election for the saints. We shall be holy as He is holy. That's not just a a command, it's a promise. We shall be holy as He is holy. It's predestined for those in Christ. Those good works of imitating Jesus and becoming like Him in our renewed hearts and minds were set out for us, Paul says in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. It was always the purpose that we should be like Christ. This is not something that's optional in the Christian life. If Christ saved you through his righteousness, he will make you righteous through his righteousness. So as Paul transitions from his description of putting off in Colossians 3 to putting on, he gives us some key truths, some key indicatives to bind the imperatives together, the commands he, he grounded the responsibility of all believers to put their sin to death in the truth of their own death in Christ. That they have already died to sin, so they just need to live like they've died to sin. And he binds the daily practice of every Christian of putting on Christ to something that the believers already have. The believers' privileges in Christ. And this is the positive side of, of sanctification. It's simply enjoying who Jesus is and what we have in him. We're called, the the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Positive sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is simply enjoying who Christ is. Enjoying all that God is for you in Christ. And I I think it's possible, and maybe even typical for us as Christians, to think of sanctification or holiness purely in terms of what we don't do. Just putting off our sin, just refraining from sinlessness, or, or refraining from sin, becoming sinless, putting sin to death. And that is part of sanctification. It's a necessary part. That's why we covered it last time. You have to, um, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, put to death our sin. It's a God-glorifying part of becoming like the one who was without sin, the one who is sinless. Putting our sin to death is the first step of sanctification, sort of the preliminary step to Christian living, but it's not the whole of the matter. It's easy to reduce Christian living to simply what we don't participate in as those who are set apart unto God. But that's only half of sanctification because that was only half of Christ's obedience. Christ was passively obedient. He refrained from sin in his earthly life, in obedience to the Father, in what he did not do, but he was also obedient actively. That's actually the righteousness that we're credited. We have our sins taken away from Christ on the cross, but we are credited with his active obedience, his righteousness, the things he did to obey the positive commands of the Father. He is not only righteous, but He does righteousness. And so those who are in Christ are not only to be righteous inwardly, but they are to do righteousness. We put off sin inwardly so we may put on active obedience, good works. 
But apart from the truths that Paul is giving us here in Colossians, overcoming our sin and becoming like Christ, they're, they're an overwhelming and impossible task. When we do this in our own effort or our own strength, we fail, and we fail miserably. We cannot become apart from Christ what is not natural for us. We cannot be holy or righteous or Christ-like in and of ourselves. We're not the source of our own righteousness in the Christian life. We don't work up sanctification in ourselves. Biblical sanctification does require our effort, but it's not resting on our efforts. It's not solely based on our efforts. It's based on the truth of Christ. That's what sanctifies us. Something that we take into us. The, the truth of Christ, the sanctifying truth of His Word. So our transformation in Christ, our renewal after the image of our Creator, becoming conformed to the image of the Son, is not just a matter of who we wish to be. It's not like the worldly practice of self-transformation. Acting like the person that you want to be until you are the person that you want to be. Right? Jordan Peterson says it like, clean your room, start with something small. Do something that the improved person would do until you become that improved person. It's not, what would Jesus do? That's not sanctification. And I think that's, if if we have an active view of sanctification, that's what we think of it as in the Christian life. What would Jesus do? And any unbeliever can really get on board with that. I I don't know if you guys are Facebook friends with any of the the LDS missionaries in Ada. Somehow I am. I'm not sure. But their whole advertisement around that, their whole deal is what would Jesus do? Let us help you show you, let let us help you um, to discover that. What would Jesus do? It's not a matter of that. Christ is not just the model. He's the source of our righteousness. It's not what would Jesus do. It's beholding who Jesus is. Beholding who Jesus is. And then learning. This is the knowledge. Learning who we are in him. As those who have been placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Being renewed in that knowledge of his word. It means that we, be, we begin living by the truths that we find about him in his word. Walking out who we are now in Christ. As John Owen says, our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort. It's not our lack of effort. It's our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. You must not, you must not only know that you are in Christ, but what that entails. What privileges and promises and attributes are yours in Him so that you can clothe yourself with Him. And that's why Paul begins his section on putting on Christ in the Christian life with the Christian's privileges in Christ. A knowledge of our privileges is what leads to joyful practice of putting on Christ. Informed and motivated by the priorities of of Christ, of those made new in Christ. That's what we have, our privileges in the text. And then we have our practice of putting on Christ. So as we look at this this morning, I'm just going to read the text and ask the Lord to help us. I'll start in verse 9 and go through the end of verse 17 for some context. But in Colossians 3, verse 9, it says, Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, I thank you for this time that we have together, Lord, the privilege that it is as your people. God, those whom you have called from death to life, opened our eyes, given us understanding, Lord, to worship you through your word. I thank you for your word, that it does not change, and yet it is living and active, that it expands our understanding of you, God, that it opens our minds, that it changes and transforms us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that that you would open our minds and open the scriptures to us today, that we would see what is true about Christ. Lord, that in that look, look upward to Christ and heavenly things, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, Lord. That we would not come away from this meeting together and worshiping you through your word, um, unchanged, God, unaffected, Lord. But that we would joyfully submit to the commands here from your Holy Spirit, that we would believe what you have inspired to be true, God, that you would knit us together in love as we grow up into maturity in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So in verses 10 through the first part of verse 12, in preparation to tell God's people what to put on, in verse 12, Paul gives us our privileges, what God has already done for us in Christ. He tells us, starting in the second half of verse 9, he says, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul tells us we have the privilege not only of having our old self, our old nature, our old man stripped off, as we saw last time, but of having a new self, a new man put on. In addition to the new man, we have an ongoing renewal. This is something he's doing to us. This is a divine passive verb here. He is renewing us. He is transforming us. A constantly renewing mind from God by which we grow, by which we are sanctified. Finally, Paul tells us we have a renewal that is without distinction, which overcomes all earthly divisions in Christ. The new man, the renewing mind, and the common union of Jesus. Those are our privileges. Summarized, I would say, simply by Paul in the believer's new identity is chosen by God. Holy and beloved, in verse 12. These are the truths which fuel our sanctification, which motivate our putting on of Christ. And we have all as those who are in Christ, Paul says in verse 10, already received a naon, a new self. This wasn't earned or achieved by us. It was imparted to us. It was put on us by the Spirit. We did not dress ourselves here, as it were. We were clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We were clothed by Christ and the Spirit of Christ when we were born again, when we were regenerated. This is the essence of who we are as those in Christ. We're not simply reformed people. We're not simply changed people or improved people. We are new people in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It has been put off, and behold, the new has come. We are fundamentally different now than who we were outside of Christ. We're not even the same kind of creature that we were outside of Christ. The regenerated person is as new a creature at conversion as Adam and Eve were in the week of God's first creation. We are completely new. We are transformed. Our old nature has been replaced with the regenerate nature. 
Paul says. There's not just a change in you as a Christian. There's a change of you. You are different. And this is not something we could do ourselves. This is not something the old man, the old person, the old self would want to do. God has chosen in his sovereign will to deal with all people through two men. The old man and the new man. Adam or Christ. The second Adam. And we as those in covenant connection with one of these two men, with one of these two representatives, we bear the name and the nature and the righteousness or lack of the person in whom we live. We were all born in covenant relationship with the old man, with Adam, who sinned and and through whom all received both the guilt of his sin and a nature of sin. We are sinners by nature and by covenant relationship. We're counted guilty before we're ever born. And we desire guilt from conception and then we act on that nature. We are sinners by nature and covenant relationship and we walk out what is natural for us in our lives apart from Christ. We as those in Adam sin. We sin freely and by choice and by, de- and by desire. And we receive in ourselves not only the penalty of the old man, already being counted guilty, but our own penalty for doing what is natural for us. Death under the wrath of God. Bound for an eternity of God's justice. His punishment and torture in hell according to God's holy law. Paul speaks of our existence in Adam. Our life as our unregenerate selves in Colossians 1 and 2. He says we were alienated from God. Hostile in mind. Hostile toward God. Enemies of God. Doing evil deeds. Dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision, the impurity, the defilement of our flesh. This we, we know. If you've heard any of the, the 12 or so sermons in Colossians so far, you, you've heard this. We were dead in our sins. We were dead to God. Dead to righteousness. Dead to heavenly things and heavenly truths. We were unable to believe. Unable to believe because we didn't want to believe. Unable to not only do what is good, but to desire what is good. Unable to do anything but sin and hate God and hate the people made in God's image. We as old men, our old selves, children of Adam, sons of Satan, Paul says, could not be converted, could not be renewed, could not be redeemed in our own will or in our own strength because we would sooner have chosen hell than Christ. Every person apart from God would rather choose eternal conscious torment in hell under the wrath of God than to be reconciled to Christ. There are no seekers for Christ. We don't want Christ. We hate Christ. We would rather go to hell. We would rather everyone around us go to hell than us be reconciled to God in Christ. And I think there's implicit here, there's the, but, there's the words, but God. We don't see them written here, but we see them in Colossians 1 and 2. We see them in Ephesians 1 and 2. Those two words of unspeakable privilege about the Christian. But God. He says in Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. He stripped off our old man, our old self, and he gave us a new one. He transferred us, as Justin referenced this morning in Colossians 1, from the kingdom of darkness, the authority of darkness, into the kingdom of the beloved son. He caused us to be born again through the gospel as new people. He created us again as new creatures. He clothed us in Christ. He chose to deal with us, not in Adam, but in the second Adam. Not in, not in the old man, but in the new. And on the basis of his choice, with our new desires given to us as a gift, not converted natures, not half-old, half-new natures, but a new nature that he created in us, apart from our will and apart from our effort, then we came to Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel truth. The privilege of having put on the new man was not based on our choice, but on God's. 
He says in verse 12, we as new people are his eclectos, his chosen, his called, his elect. The doctrine of God's election, his sovereign grace is, is probably one of the most debated and misrepresented truths in all of Scripture. And not only those who disagree with it, who reject it, they speak of it wrongly, but I think we speak of it wrongly so many times. God's gracious, unconditional, sovereign, free choice of a people for himself in Christ is not a doctrine to be reluctantly affirmed, to be ashamed of. It's not a doctrine to be angrily defended. It's not an ugly truth in Scripture to be covered up for the sake of unity or placed in the background of our faith. It is one of, if not the great doctrine of Scripture, that God chose to save sinners. He chose to save sinners. This is his grace. It is the basis of our redemption. God elects, God calls his foreknown, foreloved people to himself, and he makes them new creations or else none would be saved. God's sovereign grace is the only kind of grace that he has. It's the only kind of redeeming grace that he has. God's gracious choice is a privilege. It's a privilege that every Christian has, whether you're aware of it, whether you understand it. You're never going to fully understand it. But whether you're aware of it, whether you understand it, whether you affirm it or not, it's a privilege that you have in Christ. It's a privilege that should define the Christian life and the one which fuels sanctification. Election is the heartbeat of holy living. God's God's election is for something because as Paul shows us, God's choice of his people is not simply for conversion or for salvation at the point of salvation, not simply for regeneration, but God's choice is for sanctification. God predestined, he chose his people to be something. He didn't just choose them, he chose them to be something, to be conformed to the image of the Son. God chooses us not on the basis of ourselves, but solely in his own wisdom and for his own glory. And because he chooses us for his own glory, he chooses us to be holy. And he's chosen not only that we should be holy, set apart in mind and life unto Christ, but the process by which that should take place. Paul gives us not only the fact of our new self, but the process of our renewing here, our renewal, our renewing mind, our having put on the new self, as Paul says at the beginning of verse 10, is a one-time past tense event. This is something God did in every single convert, in every single believer. But Paul also speaks of our new selves as being renewed after the image of our Creator. The new self is not incomplete. There's not something left in the new birth that we have to finish. That's not... Paul's point. The new self is not incomplete, but it is immature. The born-again Christian is an infant in Christ with a completely new nature, but the capacity yet still to grow. Our renewal here is the gradual setting apart and purifying of our new person in the flesh for God's purposes. It's essentially God preparing us, God equipping us for his service, his ministry, We do not become more of our new selves in sanctification. We who are in Christ are right now truly new creations. But we do become more capable new selves. We become more capable functioning like new creations. We are set apart more and more unto the priestly service of God. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is priestly language. It has to do with the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. We are set apart as God's instruments for God's purposes. Babies learn to crawl then to pull up and then to walk, and so in our being renewed, as we are transformed, we as Christ's new creatures, we learn to walk in Christ. We are renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. It's a renewal of our mind in the truth of Christ and His Word, as Justin said this morning. It's not an improvement in our intellect or 
in our thinking abilities. It's an adjustment in our vision, our our moral and and spiritual vision to the things above with Christ. It changes the bent and the focus of our every thought, which transforms everything about the way we live. And as we learn more about Christ, his character and his attributes, his heart towards sinners and his will and desires for his people, we learn to think and behave and walk as he, to live lives of, of truth and grace, to be holy As he is holy, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, Paul says in Romans 12, and no longer conformed to the world, to its priorities, to its conduct, to its uh, heart for other people. We are set apart as living sacrifices. And this renewal of mind, this growth as Christians, as I mentioned, is a divine passive. God is doing this to us. God is doing this. Christ is transforming us, growing us through our knowledge of him. He he not only um, motivates us to study the word, he empowers our transformation through it. This is not something we do in our own efforts. God has chosen us by grace and he's fitting us for service by grace. And in God's sovereign grace and putting on our new self, he gave us the nature and he gave us the desires. He gave us the will to obey the Lord. And in God's gracious renewal of our minds, he's giving us the wisdom, the discernment, the ability to act on those new desires. This is, this is what sanctification is, experiencing the privileges of God, both to will and to do his good pleasure. And thirdly, Paul tells us that God's choosing and renewing of lost and dead sinners into a holy people, a kingdom of priests, as Peter says, who serve the Lord with gladness and proclaim into the world. This renewal is something that he performs on every single person in Christ. Every single person that is chosen by God without distinction or qualification. There are no rankings of Christians in the kingdom of Christ. There are no worldly distinctions which make some Christians more valuable and some Christians less valuable to the service of God. There's also no distinction that should be gloried in, that the Christian can be defined by or proud of, that takes precedent um, to the common union that we all have in Christ. Here, Paul says in verse 11, that is, in this renewal, in this renewal of our minds, there is not Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul, Paul is essentially listing the most major and meaningful distinctions in the world at Paul's time. The distinction between Gentile and Jew or Greek and Jew is a, a distinction that God made when he made the Jewish people. The distinction between barbarians and Greeks. Barbarians were non-Greek speakers, considered uncivilized or uneducated by the Greeks. Scythians were really a tribe of savage, hated and feared barbarians. They were violent. The Jewish historian Josephus describes them as little better than wild beasts. These are the people that Christ is renewing. The the divide between slaves and freemen is obvious. It's fundamental. Paul's point here is that these distinctions can't be made for people who are being renewed, who are renewed in Christ. And indeed, any outward and earthly distinction that we can make has no bearing on our standing and on our promise of renewal in Christ. There is no background too rough, no cultural context that you come from that's too immoral, no childhood that's too traumatic, no personality type that's too difficult, no educational background that's too insufficient, no social distinction too great to prevent a Christian's transformation in Christ or to to distinguish him from the rest of the saints. If you are in Christ... You are of him totally, and you will be transformed completely. Because as Paul tells us, Christ is all and in all. That doesn't mean that we are all carbon copies of one another, that we all have the same function. Paul says in Galatians 3, there is no male and female. That doesn't mean that we are all transgender now. 
There are distinctions about us that exist in the circumstances in which we live. But in the renewed mind of the people of Christ, even the most fundamental of differences is only an opportunity for the transformative power of Christ to be displayed in all of his people. Those differences are not sources of division in the body, but opportunities to express Christ's love. And Paul is also removing any pretense of an excuse that a professing believer might have for not putting on Christ-likeness in every area of life. When it comes to being like Christ, the one in Christ cannot say, I was born this way. It's just who I am. That's not my personality type. That's not my culture. I wasn't raised that way. I wasn't given the privileges that everyone else has. Yes, you were. You were in Christ. There, there are no different starting places for the ones who are in Christ. Those statements may be true of who you were, but those distinctions are removed. We are all partakers of the new nature. We are all new creatures. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. As Paul says in Galatians, we have one Lord, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He says in Galatians 3, for in Christ you are all sons of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. So as a Christian today, to say that you cannot be changed, that you will not be radically changed in heart and mind because of some background, because of some earthly distinction, is to claim that thing is more compelling and more powerful and more transformative than Christ in your life. It's more powerful than Christ in your life. Christ is not only the Savior of all who believe, He is equally sufficient for the transformation of all who have believed. He is all that every believer needs, no matter the circumstances or background, to be fully sanctified, to be faithfully obedient to God's Word. And He is in all. There's no value distinction between believers because we all have received the same Christ. Christ is all, Paul says, because He is all that matters. And he is in all to make us all complete. He does not start the work of transformation in any person for whom he does not intend to complete it. He is present with every believer, overseeing and empowering their growth as Christians. And it's this knowledge that he is in you at all times, for all situations. It's part of that knowledge that renews you as you become like him. And those people who continue to draw these distinctions in the body as if they matter, Greek and Jew, black and white, the SBC is very good at drawing these distinctions. Multi-ethnic is, is one of the favored words of SBC churches right now. Multi-ethnic, multi-generational. We're going to split them up into as many groups as possible. What they're doing is they're stunting the growth of every person in the body when they do that. They're asking you to glory in and define yourself by your distinctiveness instead of Christ's. There is one fundamental distinction in the body. One factor that matters about you, and that is that you are in Christ. That you are in the beloved Son. As Paul tells, in the, tells us in the, the last particular in verse 12, we who are in the beloved are beloved by God. There's one distinction that is all-encompassing, that is all-important, that is life-transforming and identity-shaping for you as a Christian. One defining quality that you have, and that is that you are loved by God in Jesus Christ. With a special love, a covenant Love, a steadfast love. This love that he set on you in love from, the, from eternity past. And as that love has been realized in his drawing and converting you to Christ by the Holy Spirit, it has eclipsed every other claim to authority or defining distinction or cause for glory in your life. You are known by one thing to God. You are known by one thing in the heavenly places, and that is that you are loved by God in Jesus Christ. 
It's the only reason you're a Christian. It's the only reason you can act like a Christian. God's love and election is the basis of our redemption. His love in Christ humbling himself and dying for us while we were yet sinners is the means of our forgiveness and our reconciliation. His continued love in Christ is the securing of everything that we need to be like Christ. These are the privileges we have in Christ, Paul says. The things already true of you as a Christian. Unmerited, simply gifts of God's sovereign grace, a new nature, a renewing mind, a common union with Jesus. Paul summarizes these privileges in verse 12 when he calls the Colossians chosen by God, holy and beloved. On the basis of these privileges, because of what you are and have been given in Christ, and because of what God is doing in you, for the sake of Christ, so walk in good works and the righteous way that God has set out for you. That's the relationship. We don't work to validate God's choice. God didn't look down the corridors of time and see who would work for him, who would choose him, who merited him there. That's really a legalistic doctrine. God chooses you. God saves you on the basis of what you do in the future. It's just legalism moved down the road. It's time-traveling legalism. That's what it is. God didn't choose you for that. You don't work to validate God's choice. But rather, we work as Christians, and we don't, we don't work to achieve holiness in order to merit God's love. We work as Christians in sanctification because we are already chosen and counted holy and promised to be holy, already beloved in Christ. Know your privileges in Christ and then walk in accord with that. That's, that's what brings us to the imperative in our text today. One imperative is just put on. Put on in verse 12. Put on as these things, as God's chosen ones and holy and beloved there's one word in the Greek for this. It's indio. It's, it's simply a word for putting on clothes, putting on um, something, dressing yourself up. The same word is in verse 12. God has clothed you in Christ, so clothe yourself in him. You are in Christ, so dress the part. Put on in your life what you have already been given in Christ. Adorn your life with Christ. We see what we are to put on in verses 12 through 14. We put on the very character of Jesus himself. In verses 12 through 14, Paul says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All of these things listed are characteristics of Jesus. His compassion, his kindness, and humility, and meekness, and patience, his forgiveness, and his love. He's the epitome of these things. We want to know what these things are. We look to Christ. And that's why learning about Christ, growing in our knowledge of Him and His character, is what renews us as Christians. We learn what we should look like as Christians by looking to Christ. He's not simply the model. He's the source. We are learning what we have in Him. These things are that which He is. And as He is in us, these riches, these adornments are already available to us. They're in our closet as Christians. You just have to put them on. We put on Christ. Firstly, we see, when we look at how we put on, we, say, we see that we put on Christ inwardly. All of these things are not actions. They're not behaviors in and of themselves. They're attitudes of the heart. As with putting off our sin, the outward behaviors are only incidental. They're downstream. They're the end result, the fruit. We want to get at the roots. These are the, these are the, the roots of Christian living. Paul doesn't give us a list of behaviors here that we are to put on. As God's holy and beloved elect. If Paul were to do that, he'd be letting us off far too easy. The point is not that we try to act like Jesus outwardly. The point is that we are becoming like Jesus, conformed to him at our very core. 
the very depths of our being, that we are truly like him at heart. You can't be Christ-like in your actions if you're not actively becoming conformed to Christ in your mind and in your heart. The inward character and disposition of Christ himself. This is what Paul starts with. The inward character and disposition of Christ. Secondly, we see that um, this inward character, inward disposition are things that we put on for the sake of those around us. If you look at the, the list of qualities or virtues here in verse 12, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. These are all things that have to do with other people. All things that have to do outside of ourselves. They're always, in prim- they're always primarily in reference to those outside of us. You don't become sanctified in and of yourself apart from other people. You don't become sanctified by yourself. You can't become mature alone as a Christian. You can't become Christ-like by yourself. Your putting on Christ is always in the body of Christ. This is a corporate command here too. This plural command, put on as God's chosen ones. Not as God's chosen one. Put on. As a church, put on as a body, put on as a people. Maturity in Christ does not happen in a vacuum. Our sanctification is not some sort of mystical piety that we do. That we learn the secrets of Christ, shut up in this old tower with ancient scrolls, learning his secrets and becoming like him, never having to interact with those around us. Christ's obedience, his practical righteousness, was not in a monastery. It was in a crowd. Every time you see Christ's obedience, it was in a crowd. It was with his disciples. It was his ministry, his mission of redemption, his suffering service. Sanctification is God's equipping you for ministry. Everything that pertains to spiritual maturity in the Christian life has to do with ministry to others. You become conformed to Christ inwardly and outwardly by training your minds in the work of this ministry, in serving others, in building up the body of Christ. We are never more like Christ in our Christian walk than when we are looking outside of ourselves to the needs of others. That's what our sanctification is. Putting on Christ can only be done then in the body of Christ. Everything that God gives you in Christ, all of your gifts and privileges and wisdom are given to you by the Spirit for the building up of the body, the edification of others. So if you're not growing as a Christian... If you go long periods without growing as a Christian, it might be because you are not employed in the very service for which those things are given. Christ doesn't give you tools. He doesn't give you gifts that he doesn't intend for you to use. Ministry is not something that pastors do while the rest of the body watches. Ministry is an expression of the body's health, of the body's growth. And as you are sanctified, you become a more effective instrument of Christ's service to his people. Your participation and service to the body not only affects your growth as a Christian, it affects the growth of those around you. They're not being served. They're not being equipped. And you're not around for them to serve. You're not only inhibiting your own growth in Christ, you are inhibiting the growth of those in the body. The way Paul describes it in Colossians and Ephesians is that growth comes from the head, from Christ, but it comes through the body, through the joints and ligaments, growing together. Every member of the body is vital to the health and growth of the body, or God would not have put you here. You wouldn't be here if God didn't have a purpose for you, not only to minister to those around you, but so that they could minister to you, so that they could grow. Paul is telling all of us, all the the body parts that Christians are, are to be, all of the things that we are, we are vital to one another. Paul tells us that we are not to be an appendix, right? You, nobody really knows what it does, and you only hear from it when something's wrong. Right? That, that's an issue. You can't be that kind of body member. 
You are to be a mutually contributing body member, someone that allows other people to grow in Christ as well. So we see the first thing we put on as Christians for the sake of others in our hearts. The attitude of the Christian is a servant heart. See those in the words compassionate, kind, humble. The word for compassionate here is often used to describe God's compassion. It's a deep awareness and sympathy for the suffering and needs of others. An intense feeling of pity, distress at the problems of others. The, the word for hearts here is actually a Hebraism. It's splonknon in the Greek. It's actually bowels. Something like your bowels. The very deepest part of you inwardly. The very deepest part of your inward being is to be moved with compassion and mercy toward another person. You are to yearn toward other people with compassion. Yearning to ease their pain. Yearning to meet their need. To show mercy to others in distress. And variations of this phrase are used time and time again of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus was moved with compassion for the distressed and downcast crowds. Like sheep without a shepherd in Matthew 9. He was deeply moved at the plight of the sick in Matthew 14. The hungry in Matthew 15. The blind and the spiritually blind in Matthew 20. He, was, he felt pity and mercy for the leprous in Mark 1. The demon possessed in Mark 9. The widowed and grieving in Luke 7. Jesus as fully man and fully God was the most compassionate, is the most compassionate and merciful person one could imagine. He not only knows what you are experiencing, he knows intimately the suffering and needs of his people as one of his people, but also as their creator and as their sustainer. And because we are in Christ and we've received this kind of compassion from the Lord, so we are to put that compassionate heart on for others. This is a command from Paul that goes beyond expressing sympathy for the saints or for the lost. It's a call to actually feel that tenderness and heartfelt concern for the physical and spiritual condition of the people around us and to be driven by that concern to join them in it, to join them in their distress, not just to tell them to be warmed and filled. It's to actually meet the need. Jesus's compassion Jesus acted on his compassion. He wasn't only led to feel sympathy for the hungry, feel sympathy for the ignorant, but he met those needs. He fed the hungry. He taught the ignorant at his own time and expense, and it also led him to the earth. You think of stepping into someone's distress. There's no better example of that than Christ. Christ was altogether separate from the plight of his people, the plight of his elect people here on earth, and yet he stepped into our condition. And he didn't only step onto the earth, He went to the cross. It led him to the cross. So you and Christ are called to actively dress your heart and mind in compassion for other people. To be driven by that Christ-like concern to actually care for others. You come by that compassion by setting your mind on Christ's compassion for you. And your suffering and your needs and your distress. His compassion toward others in his word. And therefore his compassion toward those around you. It's, it's a misused statement, but it does hold true that you will, never, you will never meet a person in this world who is not loved in some way by God, not cared for in some way by Christ, whether through common grace or for, through redeeming grace. But it follows even more that you will never encounter another saint who is not deeply cared for in all things by Christ. And you are one of the means that Christ uses to show compassion to his people on earth. You are his hands in that sense. If you've been clothed in Christ, you love Christ, you will put on compassion for others. So we we would ask ourselves, what are our thoughts of others? Do we even think about others in our normal day? But if we think about them, what do we think about them? Are we drawn to their needs? 
Or do you think primarily of your own needs? Because if it's, if it's true that you are moved inwardly with compassion for others, you will also put on kindness. It's the, the quality of being warm-hearted or considerate, gentle. It's the willingness and the readiness to do good to others. A compassionate heart is the urgent motivation to respond. Kindness is the readiness to actually meet the need, to actually do the good, even if it's undeserved or unprompted or inconvenient for you. The Greek word describes grace that permeates the entire person. It rounds off our sharp edges toward people. It mellows the harshness toward others. It exudes care and concern for your neighbor, even as you care for yourself. The word here is for God's kindness. God's kindness, Christ's kindness, his kindness, even toward ungrateful and evil people. Even toward those who don't deserve it. Not just an attitude of kindness, but his kindness, his active kindness through his grace benefits even his enemies. He brings rain on the just and the unjust. He feeds and he clothes them. He blesses them with good things. It's Christ's kindness that leads us to repentance in Romans 2. It's the kindness of the good Samaritan, caring for an enemy at your own expense. Even if that kindness is never seen or acknowledged or repaid, it's a kindness that's not driven by a person's merit but by their need. It's gentleness toward those who disagree with you theologically. It's gentleness toward those with other worldviews. Gentleness toward those who have harmed you. Or spoken ill of you. It's kindness born of humility here. The valuing of others is more significant than yourself. Of assessing yourself rightly. Especially in light of your own sin. Your own creatureliness. This is the opposite. This humility. The opposite of the self-love and self-interest. Self-providing at the expense of others. It's the opposite of the competitive pride Paul warns against in Philippians. The root of division in the church. When Christians count themselves as more significant as most significant, and view their life and the body in terms of what they deserve or what they need? Do you have the respect you deserve, the recognition you deserve, the role in the ministry that you deserve? Are your interests being served? Are your preferences being catered to? Are your needs being met? This kind of Christian, this self-prizing, self-focused Christian is the one who is most draining to the work of the ministry. They absorb time and attention, and they give nothing back. They constantly focus on themselves, their shortcomings, their needs, always looking inward. And because of that, growing more and more miserable, because what most nourishes you as a Christian is looking outward to the needs of others after the example of Christ. This is the example Paul points to in Philippians 2, the humility of Christ, lowering himself, taking on human flesh, submitting to the will and plan of the Father on earth, being obedient even to death on a cross. He's not just an example of the humility. He's the source of this humility. This, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Philippians 2. When you put on Christ's servant heart toward others, when that happens in a body, as, as Randy has mentioned before, you don't have to look after your needs anymore. If everyone in the body is doing this, if everyone in the body is compassionate toward the needs of others, eager to do good to others, humble about their own needs, then everyone's needs will be met. Everyone will be served. You will be taken care of as you grow. And everyone will grow together. We are all served that way. And we all mature that way together as we serve one another. Secondly, our putting on Christ for the sake of others means that we also clothe ourselves in Christ's steadfast suffering and endurance. Serving like Christ means suffering like Christ. That's what Paul is getting at in the commands to put on meekness and patience. Meekness or or gentleness is not weakness. It's not cowardice. It's not being a pushover. But it is the willingness to suffer harm rather than inflicting it. 
to bear the cost of any conflict, any provocation. In order to serve the other people in the body, you will need to be close enough to be sinned against. It's going to happen. People are people. We're still in the flesh. We still have the indwelling sin and earthliness in us. In order to to get close enough to serve people, you'll be close enough to be sinned against. It's going to happen. And with the Christ-like motivation of compassion, the desires to show kindness in humility toward those around you, also comes the willingness to be wronged without returning an offense. Even when seeking to correct or restore someone in sin, especially then, that's when you are most apt to be sinned against. Even when fighting for the faith, it's, it, this sort of meekness, this kindness, this gentleness is the replacement of anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk in verse 8 of Colossians 3. It's the, the compulsion to get justice for yourself, to get even. This meekness is a soft answer. It's a turned cheek, an accusation left undefended, a final word left unreturned. Gracious words in exchange for insults. Gracious words in exchange for insults. Do you think we as Christians are known for that in our culture? Gracious words in exchange for insults. I would say even just as as a body, we don't have a consistent witness among believers for that, much less among the lost. This is to be a testament not only to the love of Christ in us, but the love of Christ for those in the world, the, the redeeming love of Christ. The meekness is an indispensable part of Christian maturity. It's the consistent mark of those known by Christ. You don't need to stick up for yourself as a Christian to defend your honor or your reputation. As I love this quote from Spurgeon. He says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. What is there to defend as a Christian? You know your background. You know your life before Christ. Everything they say about you, even if it's not right at that moment, it was right at some point. You deserve that at some point. What is there to defend? More significantly, you don't need to defend yourself when you have an advocate in Christ. This is the point, the Christ-likeness. How much better to suffer wrong for the sake of righteousness and be rewarded by your Savior? Is his judgment not enough? Is his opinion not what matters? Is his approval not enough? It's that understanding that enables you to be patient. Patience is long-suffering, endurance even in the face of pain or unhappiness. Patience is the extended practice of meekness and humble kindness toward those who don't deserve it and to those who won't appreciate it. It's, it's this word that describes God's long-suffering with the wicked who blaspheme his name and persecute his people and harm themselves and corrupt God's creation and everything around them, who greedily partake in God's common grace without any thanks or reverence to their creator. But Paul's command is easier than that. Paul's not commanding even that kind of long-suffering here. His command to clothe yourself in patience is geared toward putting up with the body, putting up with other believers, bearing with one another, he says. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other. This is a call to endure for the sake of the Christian offender, not seeking a right to recourse or vengeance. Paul commands those in Christ to see how patiently Christ has endured the poor conduct of the unsaved, the unbeliever, his enemies, including you, Before Christ. And then to practice that same kind of endurance for the sake of Christ's friends. God is so much more patient with the wicked than we are with the justified. God endures more from unbelievers every day than we will ever put up with among the saints. God takes more from them than we will ever be willing to take from our brothers and sisters in Christ. His kindness, his patience transforms his enemies into friends. Leads them to repentance. 
We are called to bear with the weakness and failures of our brothers and sisters because of what Christ has endured for them. Because Jesus is so wonderfully patient with them and with us. Bearing with one another here in the Greek, it's a plural present action. It's going on with the entire body all the time. There's not a limit or an end to this kind of patience. There are no exceptions for this kind of patience. There are no times where you no longer have to deal with difficult people in the body or difficult situations. There will never cease to be difficult people in the body. There will never cease to be difficult situations. It's not the job of the pastor to put up with those things. It's the role of the Christian. Every believer in the body is to be patiently enduring the difficulties and weaknesses of their fellow believers so that they would have a godly environment in which to grow. And this is a reflexive pronoun. The, the, the church here is literally be putting up with themselves. That, that's the verb, putting up with themselves. You are not only one of the ones enduring difficult people. If you're here in the body, you have been endured, you are being endured by others. You're one of the ones being put up with. Think about how long Christ has put up with you. Enduring your ignorance and your sin and your faithlessness so that he may foster your maturity. There is no maturing in the body without this kind of endurance. There's no unity in the body without this kind of endurance, without this patience. There's likewise no long-suffering and endurance without the readiness to forgive. Forgiveness is a natural complement to patience, what it means to suffer long. It's suffering wrong with a heart of goodwill, not reluctantly, not extending grace to people with gritted teeth. Paul says we are to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. As Christ has forgiven us. God's grace did not come to us reluctantly. God's grace did not come to us sparingly or stingily. It came charizomai here in the Greek, freely, abundantly, with rejoicing, with favor. Jesus is not only able to forgive and willing to forgive, but he loves to forgive. He loves to forgive. He delights in mercy over judgment, and that's how we are to forgive. It's not only our duty to forgive our fellow believers as Christians, it's our joy to forgive others. To extend what we have received to others. We don't get to set boundaries or limits to this kind of forgiveness, to the number of times that we will forgive our brothers. Right? Peter tried to do that in Matthew 18. He was so generous, so magnanimous when he came to Christ. Right? Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins? Seven times? It's a lot, right? We probably don't even see seven times normally when we have to forgive, and yet we're, we're done, right? Peter's trying to be generous. Jesus answers him not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven times, depending on your translation. The point's not the number, it's the attitude of forgiveness, especially in light of all that God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you more than 490 times this morning. I promise you he has. The point's not the number, it's the attitude. Jesus next gives Peter the parable of the unforgiving servant. He contrasts the one who has forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents. That's a lottery winning number. It's, an un, it's a practically uncountable amount of money. And then he goes and he fails to forgive his fellow servant who owes him a debt of 100 denarii. 100 denarii is still quite a bit of money. It's like 100 days work. That, that's nothing to shake a stick at. That's a debt. But it's nothing in comparison to what the first servant had been forgiven. There will be real hurt, real sin, serious sins in the body of Christ. There will be substantial debts. There will be real harm inflicted on us by others. But nothing can compare with how much and how often and how readily God has forgiven us in Christ. 
We have done far more to Jesus than anyone in the body will ever do to us. Would we want him to forgive us like we forgive others? Would we want him to feel toward us what we feel toward others when we are harmed? If you truly understand how much God has forgiven you, how freely God has forgiven you, you won't even consider withholding forgiveness from those around you. Our patience toward our fellow believers is not something that we do reluctantly. It's not a white-knuckling through their foolishness till they get their act together. It's seeking their good despite of what they've done to us. It's eagerly bearing insult and harm, showing grace for their faults, freely forgiving one another time and time again so that they may, they may be healthy, so that they may be mature as Christians. It's a joyful reconciliation, a determination in us not to hold a person's sins against them, just as God has done with us through Christ. That doesn't mean we throw discernment out the window that suddenly nothing matters in the body, that anything goes, that anyone can act any way they want with no consequences. There may still be consequences for sin. But it does mean that the wrongdoing of our fellow believers does not become the filter, the lens by which we view them, or the determining factor of how we treat them. None of these Christ-like qualities listed by Paul have any self-interest in them. And so it is with our forgiveness. The worldly view of psychology... I would say the worldly church view or the worldly, the worldly psychological view of forgiveness. We even hear it in the church is that forgiveness is something for you, not the offender. Forgiveness is something to relieve yourself of a prison of bitterness, to relieve yourself of stress. Something that we do for us. We would never think of forgiving for the sake of someone else. We forgive for our own sake, for our own benefit. But we're not trying to relieve ourselves of stress by extending forgiveness because Christ was not seeking a catharsis at the cross. He was actually giving us benefit. God forgave us freely and joyfully so that we would benefit. And that's why we forgive those in the body with whom we have a complaint or a grievance. To practice unforgiveness toward those whom Christ has forgiven is to oppose God. It's to oppose God. And to be an unforgiving person is really to forfeit fellowship. Who is going to want to be around you in the body if you're an unforgiving person? If you keep a record of their wrongs. If you treat people with bitterness. If you hold to what they've done to you or what you've done to them, who's going to want to be around you? Who is there that's going to be left for you to serve? Unforgiveness is something that affects every one of us. We all have to forgive one another. There will come a point where I sin against you, where someone else sins against you. Everyone in the body will sin against you if you give them enough time, if you give them an opportunity. To be an unforgiving person is to forfeit fellowship. It's to cut yourself off from maturity and health and growth in Christ. And finally, our putting on Christ for the good of others means that we seek above all the unity of Christ's people through his unifying love. Here's the the priority, the crowning part of sanctification here. Paul says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all these could really be upon all or, or over all. It's something that saturates and controls. It compels our compassion, our kindness, our meekness, patience, forgiveness, humility, This love is binding everything else together. It's not only the highest expression of Christ-likeness, the ultimate aim of sanctification. It binds everything together like sinews and tendons in the body, like lashing on a ship. If if the garments of Christ-likeness, the clothes of Christ-likeness are these things in verse 12, then, then love is the belt that holds the whole outfit together. It keeps it all together. It really is kind of the summary of everything in these previous verses. To try and practice any of these virtues without love is legalism. 
It's the only acceptable motive. Love is for anything that we do in Christ. If we have not love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, any service to God, any gifting from God are worthless. Love is the mark of a mature Christian, a complete church, a sanctified body. Perfect harmony here is really a single word in the Greek, teleotes. It means maturity, perfection. Love is the telos, the goal of sanctification, of putting on Christ. It's what drives the people of God. It's what informs our speech and words and actions so as to build up one another and glorify the name of Christ. It's the ultimate practice through our greatest privilege. We love because he loved us first. We love because he first loved us. We love God because he chose us in love. We love others as an expression of our love for him. The word love, agape, here is a a noun in this text. It's not simply a verb. It's not something we just get to do without willing hearts and write this off as a checklist of our Christian service. It's a, it's, a, it's a noun. It's a concept. But it's not simply emotion or a feeling either. That Love in this context is a commitment. Within the context, this love is that which chooses its objects and means to do good, encompassing all the motives of the heart and characteristics of Christ in verse 12. It's a covenant bond. That's what love is. A covenant bond. The world's view of love is often passive, right? You're a slave to it. It's an inconsistent feeling over time. You fall in love. You fall out of love. You only act as you feel toward other people. Or if the world has an active form of love, it's really just self-gratification. It's transactional, right? You give and you get. You give to get. And the moment you stop getting, you stop giving. When you say you fall out of love, you really mean that the other person, the other party is no longer gratifying you. The biblical love, Christ's love here is not that way. It's sacrificial. It's faithful. It's patient and kind. It refers to the love with which Christ has loved us. God's love for us cannot be transactional. God's love for us cannot even be self-gratifying because we don't give him anything. We can't give him anything. We have nothing to offer him. He doesn't gain anything by us. There's nothing that we can give him. We can hardly conceive of that kind of love because everything about love in our culture, in our lives, is so transactional. It's so self-serving. What we know of this love is closer to the love that parents have for their infants. Right? We love our little ones even though they can't do anything for us. All they do is they take, they eat, and they make messes. That's it. They don't have anything to offer for you. I remember trying and trying and trying to get some smile from Addie when she was like two months old, and I wasn't getting it, right? Now, I could love like the world does at that point. I said, okay, I'm not changing any more diapers. I'm not feeding her at all. I'm not going to look at her until she smiles at me, right? I need to feel that gratification. Isn't that the way that we love others? The way that we love others in our, our culture today. And it's, it's, it's possible as parents of a very small child to grow to resent that reality, to grow impatient, to grow tired of loving someone that much. But that's what's so amazing about God's gracious love. Because he loves us like that. We don't do anything for him. We cannot give him gifts. We cannot repay him. And yet he loves us. And his love never grows impatient. It never grows weary. His love is always patient, always kind, and it's unconditional. You talk about God's unconditional love. That can be dangerous if you apply that to people outside of Christ. But it's perfectly true of those who are in Christ. There is never a moment for the one who is in Christ where God thinks that you've gone too far. 
That you've gone too long without meeting some performance metric. There's no sin or slowness to change in the Christian that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. God's love is secured for you eternally, completely in Christ. God's love is a covenant love in the new man of Christ. There's no condition that can qualify that or contradict that. Your sanctification is not a performance improvement plan from your heavenly employer. It's an outworking of God's love for you. A simple expression, an overflow of God's love for you. So when we are loving God, when we are serving Him, it's not transactional. The service that we render to God is not for His benefit. He doesn't gain anything. He cannot gain anything or He would not be God. God doesn't gain by our service, but His people do. That's the point. His people gain by our love for Him. His people gain by our service to Him. We love because He first loved us, despite the fact that we could offer Him nothing. And so we love others with that love, despite the fact that they cannot offer us anything. Your love for the body is not based on the value of those you are loving in the body. It's not based on what they can provide to you. It's based on the value of Christ. That's what your love for others is based on. In fact, the way that you love people around you as a Christian says a lot about how much you value Jesus, about how much value you find in Jesus. You don't love other people in the body, showing them favor and seeking their good because of what you expect to get from them. You love them steadfastly and unconditionally because of what you have gotten from Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 2, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What is that love with which Christ has loved us? It's laying his life down, sparing no trouble or expense to do good to us. Whether or not you determine that, that, we des- that, you, that other people deserve it or not. Because Christ did that for us and we definitely did not deserve it. Christ-like love relinquishes rights. It relinquishes liberties for the sake of others. In serving others and maintaining peace and fostering unity. It suffers wrong without responding in kind. It remains faithful when it's unreturned or inconsistently returned. Your love as a Christian is not based on the merit or character of others, but on the infinite worthiness and unchanging character of Christ. When you are unloving toward others in the body, when you insist on your own way, when you are hard-hearted toward those around you, when you're stingy with them or petty with them or arrogant with them, when you're self-focused with them, impatient with them, even if you have valid complaints, you're not making a character judgment on them. You're making a character judgment on Christ. So let that be the theme and priority and controlling thought of your life in the body of Christ. And you will grow in spiritual maturity. You will put on and take on the character of Christ and serve as he served. Suffer as he suffered and love as he loves. Putting on Christ means to behold who he is. Gentle and lowly at heart. Patient and kind. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Seeking and serving and laying his life down for his covenant people. And that's what sanctification is. It's not sinning less, though that is required and important. It's taking on his disposition toward others so that you build up and encourage who he purchased at the cross. Jesus gives this command in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The command to love was not a new command. Jesus gave that to his people in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the fulfillment of the law. What is new here is the phrase, as I have loved you, you are to love one another. 
Christ has demonstrated his sacrificial love for his people. And that's the model of love for his people. It's not only the model of love. It's the means and motivation of love amongst the body. The body of Christ is not the only place that love is expressed, but it is the primary place. It's the place that's most fully seen as a witness to the world and the place that it's practiced for your sanctification. This kind of love is not found in the world. It's not from this world. It doesn't make sense to the world or even your earthly, sense, earthly sensibilities. It's, not found, it's only found in the body of Christ. And if you truly want to be conformed to Jesus, that's your practice. That's your goal. To deny yourself and then to follow Christ in that manner. In radical, selfless, sacrificial ministry to his beloved. This is what a sanctified Christian looks like. Compassionate and kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving and loving. Loving others who don't deserve it and never will. Who can't repay you and never will. Because you have Christ. This person is a picture of Jesus' loving, steadfast care for other people. He's an unsung servant. A suffering slave for the good of others. You can probably think of some people in our body like this, but the truth is you probably rarely think of them at all. They think of you. They are the mature saints that hold our fellowship together. The evidence of their maturity in Christ is not their skill or their talents, not their abilities, not their great theological acumen or their apologetics knowledge. It's that they understand how good Jesus is to them. And they seek to be that that way to us. They prove by their servant hearts and suffering endurance that they truly know Christ. And that he knows them. So may we all seek this morning to put on these garments of Christ-likeness in our lives. Right? It, it, a lot of people talk about imitating Jesus in the church. Charismatics talk about following the example of Jesus by putting on his power, putting on his miracles. Right? We in the Reformed camp can talk about imitating Christ in his proclamation, in his truth-telling. Not many people talk about this kind of imitating Jesus. Becoming a servant for the sake of all. Suffering wrong for the good of others. If you want to be like Christ, this is it. Those other things may come and go, but this is the mark of one who knows Christ. Let's bow with me. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Christ. Never change. You are always true, God. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who builds up your people despite the failings of of your people, God. Despite my failings as a preacher, Lord, my failings as a student of your word, Lord, I thank you that you are always faithful to us, always kind and patient and forgiving. Lord, I pray that we would have that mind toward others, that we would seek to be like Christ in all aspects, and not just in those that serve ourselves, not just in those that lift ourselves up among others, Lord, but that we would seek to be last among all, the slave, the servant of others, Lord, as our as we love you for how you have served us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.